entertainment industry have never been making larger profits, billions and billions of dollars, paying their chief executives $250 million a year, and yet they're quibbling with the people who create the very content that makes them all that money. The ownership by the AFL-CIO of the paper really allows a little more immediacy as far as responses go, as far as like access to calendars and access to understanding what's happening that previously we kind of had to ask for. Trying to get along with management, while that may seem like a good plan out there in normal world, uh, it's not a good plan in UPS world. Wahoo stripped Rick down to his underwear in the ring, and I was hooked at that time. <laughs> As people are saying now, an existential question. First of all, will humanity make it out of the 21st century? And then will the United States become more like Turkey, Hungary, Russia, and Poland? You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. Writers Guild members are still out on strike. The Workweek radio show brings us a report from their big June 5th rally at Apple's World Headquarters in Cupertino, California. The Kansas City Labor Beacon is under new ownership, the Kansas City AFL-CIO. The Heartland Labor Forum radio show talks with Labor Beacon editor Tristan Amesqua-Hogan and publisher Abril Negret about the paper's past, present, and future. This week's episode of the Roswell Hub podcast covers being harassed at the workplace. The America Works podcast features excerpts from a longer interview with independent professional wrestler Seymour Ray, better known as Ray Idol. And in our last segment from the Labor History Today podcast, Bill Fletcher Jr. on resisting tyranny through a 21st century labor movement. That's from the 12th Annual Conference of the Labor Research and Action Network. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Got a hidden flask, I'm paid in cash. Got a cross above my bed. You know, I hitchhiked from Chicago. And a man walked up and said, This is a union town, a union town. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek. This week we'll hear from striking members of the Writers Guild of America West who went to the Apple World Headquarters on June 5th to demand justice in their contract fight. They produce content for Apple Plus streaming service. They were also joined by Teamsters and Google workers who are members of the Alphabet Workers Union. My name is Liz Shalon Albert and I am honored to serve as a board member of the WGA West. With our sister guild, Writers Guild of America East, we represent over 11,000 writers behind your favorite television shows and movies. For the past 34 days, we have been on strike against the studios, including Apple, for a contract that will make writing a sustainable career again. The majority of the WGA's 11,000 members are not the filthy rich auteurs the studios paint us to be. Before the rise of streaming, most writers were considered middle class. Now, Wall Street and big tech companies like Apple have decimated our middle class in their pursuit of growing profits by squeezing their overhead out of our already shrinking pay. Writers are working harder and longer but making less money than ever before. 
big tech companies like Apple have taken advantage of changes in the business model to cut writers out of the profits they make off of our work and undermine our working conditions. Today, Apple will reveal to the world the progress they have made with artificial intelligence, or AI. Like our employers, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, they will tell you it's a tool meant to revolutionize the workplace. The AMPTP told writers at the negotiating table that they want AI to benefit writers and other Hollywood workers, insisting AI is here to help us, not replace us. And yet media consultants and insiders speak at industry functions about using AI to make labor more efficient so they can save for much bigger films or do more movies, bragging that AI can save studios the 50 to 70% of a film budget that goes to labor. In other words, companies like Apple want to make AI's role in film and television production more efficient by making workers redundant. Will we stand for that? No. Will we stand for that? No. Will we stand for that? No! My name's Richard Cordner. And you're a writer? Yes, I'm a writer, yeah. So what's, what are the issues that brought you to Apple today? Uh, well, there's multiple issues that the WGA is uh, is striking for. Um, the rise of many rooms being one of them, and also the fact that uh, like half the members of the WGA are working for guild minimums. Uh, the, the larger point is that uh, corporations in the entertainment industry have never been making larger profits, billions and billions of dollars, paying their chief executives $250 million a year, and yet they're quibbling with the people who create the very content that makes them all that money. So we're sick of it, to be honest. And the salaries of the executives are quite high that you're fighting? $250 million uh, last year, I think David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Discovery, was paid. So yeah, they're, they're pretty high. There's some reports of workers feeling they're gig workers. They're turned into gig workers yeah. with these smaller rooms. What's, what's that all about? That's exactly how writing feels at the moment. It feels like gig work. Like it used to be a pretty stable profession, a, a solid kind of middle class or upper middle class profession for people. And nowadays it, it, it does sort of feel like you're just, you're working for, you're working for increasingly shorter periods periods of times on jobs and then you're essentially unemployed looking for the next job so it's the very definition of gig work. And Goldman Sachs has said that there may be 300 million workers who lose their jobs as a result of AI. It seems like it's a broader social economic issue. Absolutely, yeah. I think that this is the coalface for an awful lot of jobs, not just in the creative industries, but professional white-collar jobs that AI could soon be threatening. So it's important to put the guardrails in place now and do everything that we can to ensure that people are treated fairly by the companies they work for. Well, you have a union that's able to kind of negotiate at this point on the introduction of technology. Most workers in the country don't have unions. Yep. They basically... The technology is basically introduced to the wild, wild west. Europe has a proposals to kind of regulate the introduction of this technology. There is uh, the lessons of the Industrial Revolution, the Luddites, mm -hmm. and the destruction of guilds and that kind of thing. Do you think that that's what's going to happen now? Well, I mean, they're interesting parallels, to be sure, but I think if you look at the way European businesses are run in general, there are far more regulations in, in place and far more worker protections in place. And the very fact that there's been such a decline of trade union membership over the last sort of 40, 50 years, it's a really sad indictment of where we've gotten to as a society because workers only have power when they act collectively. How long are you prepared to stay out? Uh, as long as it takes. And is there solidarity in your membership? Absolutely, 100%.
My name is Chris Ford. And how long have you been on strike? We've been on strike for a month and a couple days now. We're in front of Apple and... Yes, uh, we're here in front of Apple and we're just here to defend the profession of screenwriting and television writing. What kind of writing do you do? Uh, I'm a screenwriter and uh, I've just started my first uh, uh, TV project now. And this issue of streaming, apparently they're not providing information about how many streaming they're doing. I mean, is there a reason for that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, more on the tech company side, the Netflix side, they don't want to release the information because to them, information is is value. And we can understand that, but we can negotiate about it. Let's sit down at the bargaining table and come up with a solution instead of just not talking about it. An issue of gig work and writers being turned into gig workers, what, what does that mean to you? Um, yeah, so making, making writing into a gig instead of a career means that only people who have like other financial support could even be writers. That's going to limit it to certain types of people, certain classes of people, and it's going to make movies and TV worse. We've been trying to be more inclusive, more inclusive, get more all different kinds of stories that will end. You mean the diversity that you're talking about? Yeah, diversity of, of perspective and in, in, in any way. We're trying to avoid some of the problems that other people who are in the film business have, like, like producers have a really hard time becoming producers and only certain kinds of people can even become producers and we want to have the protection so that anyone can become a screenwriter if they're passionate about writing and talented. To the Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. I'm Tom Gevkin, and I'll be co-hosting this segment with Judy Morgan. The Kansas City Labor Beacon has a long and rich history of providing great information about what's going on in the Kansas City labor movement. The longtime owners, Kevin and Gay O'Neill, recently sold the paper to the Kansas City AFL-CIO. On tonight's show, we're happy to have the editor and the publisher of the paper, Tristan Amezqua-Hogan and Abril Negrete, to discuss where the Labor Beacon has been and where it's going. Uh, guys, we want to welcome you to the Heartland Labor Forum. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks. Yes, welcome from me, too. So so now it's the two of you? That's you're, correct. You're the, you're the entire staff? Yeah, we're the entire staff. Um, I was organizing with CWA when, um, you know, Union Inc., or what was about to become Union Inc., reached out to me and asked me if, if I would be uh, willing to join on this project, and Tristan and I have just been building this plane as we fly it, but it was also flying already. No, absolutely, and I think that just to mention the tribute to Kevin and Gay, I, I, I really think that what they did is really undervalued in, in not just in the union world, who everyone, I mean, I think everyone you'll find on deep appreciators, but also across the Kansas City market. Um, we're, we're, I mean, very blessed to have such a lively labor media apparatus. Uh, regularly going out to union members, regularly providing education, recon uh, texting, like political news, union news, building news, whatever it might be. And Kevin and Gabe really, I mean, this was their baby. They spent decades working on it and building it up to what it is today. So what's it like now with the AFL-CIO, Greater Kansas City AFL-CIO is the owner and you the staff? What's the relationship like? Well, 
uh, I wasn't there to work with Gay and Kevin, but as far as what it, what it's like now, um, it's a very useful way to have doors opened for us, um, to have communication with leaders here in the city and outside of our city as well. Um, yeah, it's it's an amazing. I think to add to that, the uh, the Abril's right. Like the ownership of the by the AFL-CIO of the paper really allows a, a little more immediacy as far as responses go, as far as like access to calendars and access to understandings of what's happening that previously we kind of had to ask for, uh, which I think has been a very positive change. And it also, I mean, it, it makes us have a better product in the day because we're spending less time getting there and more time spending time on the thing when we're there. What are the, your plans for the paper moving forward? I think that as we look at what what is what is the role of a labor newspaper in 2023, and we really have to reflect on like what is the the role it's currently playing in a household? How does it interact with families? How does it interact with uh, regularity as far as contact between unions and their membership, and also just politicians and the membership? So we really act as an outlet for all of that. As we look into the future, I think what's most important to us is finding ways to continue to maintain those new relationships. There's been so much changeover in the political scene and the union leadership scene, uh, then also starting to make plans to transition the paper into whether that be a more digital experience or a, a some combination of thereof. I think that what's really important to us now, and it's also, if you've noticed, the Labor Beacon we refer to now as the Labor Beacon instead of the Kansas City Labor Beacon, because our plans really are to be quite regional. We want to make sure that, sure, Kansas City will always be the home and the focus point of this publication. But as we go into the future, it's important to us that we can scale into Kansas, we can scale into Western Missouri, and we can really tackle anywhere. We have membership that reads in Iowa and Nebraska on the regular anyways. We want to become very much the labor newspaper for you know Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. Roswell Hub is a weekly podcast dedicated to Teamsters helping Teamsters. What is going on, everybody? So today I have Norm out of Local 623 in Philadelphia and Greg Kerwood out of Local 25 in Boston. And we are going to be covering I am being harassed. What do I do? So we have kind of come together and found three different areas that most members end up falling into when they end up getting harassed. You know, I feel like most people, when they come to work for this company, they generally just want to go in, do their job, and go home. Unfortunately, it's not that simple when you work for this company. So we're going to cover the three scenarios we see the most often and what is the best scenario for you to protect yourself if you're being harassed. Okay? So... We're going to go over scenario one, right? Someone's being harassed, and they they figure, you know what? The best thing to do to get management off my back is just to work harder, work with them, make sure that I don't have that target on my back. Uh, you know, Norm, what do you have to say about all that? That is the easiest way to have the harassment continue. Fear is the greatest tool that UPS has against us as Teamsters. If you just think you're going to duck your head and dig in and they're not going to say anything to me, the only reward you get for that is more work. You become the whipping person. They're just going to beat on you, beat on you. Okay, 
I know I can harass you. Okay, load this truck, okay? Let's run you over here, load this truck. Now go over here, unload that truck, then when it comes down, you reload again. You have to stand up for yourself. We have to use our grievance procedure, have to call ethics. Whatever you do, you have to get your union involved. Now, Greg, I'm gonna throw it to you. Is there anything more you would like to add to that? Yeah, I always tell people, uh, if you work for UPS, you have a target on your back. And, uh, you know, trying to get along with management while that may seem like a good plan out there in normal world, uh, it's not a good plan in UPS world. Uh, as Norm said, management will take full advantage of that. Um, they will lie to you. They will promise you things that they don't deliver. Uh, they will take advantage of your desire to keep them at bay. And as Norm said, they will increase that harassment to keep you in that position. Um, so that is not the approach to take if you are being harassed on the job. So we're going to go to scenario number two, which is, you know, you, you, you just had it, right? Management is just pushed you to the brink point, but then you go from zero to 100 without knowing anything about the contract. Now, Norm, I'm going to throw it to you. How does this play out? All right, first, always say something if you think you're being harassed even if it's just a suspicion say something but like you said you have to you can't throw stones living in a glass house you can't be that employee that comes in late every day but okay now you're saying something about my misloads or my drop bags and now i want to file a bunch of grievances i don't want to tell anyone not to file but make sure you're clean cya and everything follow all the methods and just make sure you're doing the right thing before you start following. You don't want to find yourself, okay, it's, it's, it's strange. I don't want to say don't file, but just make sure you protect yourself and you follow all the rules when you file. Well, our third scenario is you're getting harassed and then you're like, oh, well, let me go see what my rights are. And then you start filing. Uh, Norm, what's your perspective on this? It's a good thing. It's a great thing. Actually, I love when people get motivated and when they get involved. I'm sorry that it's taken harassment to get you to that point, but I welcome anybody that wants to become educated, get involved, and start to you know protect themselves. Absolutely. Now, Greg, what's your perspective on all this? Uh, I think that that is absolutely the right approach. Uh, it's a controlled burn. Uh, you need to take all that anger and frustration and rather than explode, uh, channel it into learning the methods, learning the rules, learning your contract, talking with your steward, talking with your business agent, talking perhaps with some senior members who may be working near you or working with you who you see not being harassed and asking them, you know, how it is that they do it. Or if you see someone standing up to management, uh, you know, learn from them, reach out to them and say, hey, uh, how, how does that work? You, you just told them off and they, they don't bother you, you know, what are you doing that I'm not doing? And, and take notes and learn. And, and, you know, there's nothing like information to give you power in the workplace. When you have the right information and you know the rules better than the company, you hold all the cards and then you can protect yourself. That's all I got. I'll see you guys around next Sunday. Later. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to America Works, interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project.
This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross, and this America Work episode features excerpts from a longer interview with the independent professional wrestler Seymour Ray, a respected athlete who is widely known by his professional name, Ray Idol. He was interviewed at his home in Bristol, Tennessee by folklorist Delaney Bowers as part of her project documenting independent professional wrestlers in central Appalachia. Professional wrestling has millions of fans throughout the United States. In addition to major national wrestling circuits like the WWE, smaller independent circuits also flourish throughout the United States. Part competitive sport, part entertainment, and part K-Fab, Ray Idol talks about his two decades as a professional wrestler, as well as his earlier non-sports career as a school teacher. As a fan, um, I think going back to Roughly about eight years old, um, I watched um, Ric Flair wrestle Wahoo McDaniel, and <laughs> Wahoo um, stripped Rick down to his underwear in the ring, and I was hooked at that time. <laughs> um, you know, I always respected wrestlers as athletes, and, you know, you, you had a variety of different um, characters or personas that just really kept you interested. Um, but in regards to actual psychology, you know, you're, you're telling a story um, in the true essence of the sport. You know, you have a good guy, the baby face, or you have a heel, the bad guy, and they're job is to go out and tell the most believable story and to get the crowd to buy in. And it's a great way to reach kids um, because so many kids, especially when I was teaching, were fans of wrestling. Um, You know, one student, everything that he wrote had something to do with wrestling, you know, and I, I was getting him to write, you know, so, and he hated writing, but as long as he could write about wrestling, he was fine, and he was able to become a fairly good writer based on wrestling, but, you know, but I think he was able to transfer that later in life. You know, the kids have, you know, been able to see me um wrestle, um, you know, certain people, and, you know, they love it. Um, What I will go back to um, will be a conversation that I had with my principal when I was a teacher, you know, because I told her, said, hey, you know, I've, I've been training to be a pro wrestler, and it's on TV, um, at the time, I, I was working for two um, promotions um, that were televised locally. Um, you know, so the first comment that she made was something to the effect of, why are you doing this? You're too intelligent to do this. But no matter the crowd size, whether it's, you know, a few hundred, few thousand, just that fan reaction, that pop that they give, you know, it, it's something that you just can't ever shake, I don't think. Or at least I haven't been able to. 
You've been listening to Seymour Ray, an independent professional wrestler who's better known to his many fans as Ray Idol. Thank you for listening to America Works. The first major assault on the victories of the New Deal took place when the Republicans took Congress and immediately began introducing repressive legislation, including the so-called Taft-Hartley Act, um, which was in connection with the U.S.-British announcement of opening the Cold War, allegedly to stop Soviet aggression, but actually more to contain the Soviet Union and to smash popular movements in Europe uh, and Africa and Asia in particular. We are looking at, as people are saying now, an existential question. First of all, will humanity make it out of the 21st century? And then, will the United States become more like Turkey, Hungary, Russia, and Poland? That is, with the outer appearance of democracy, but heavily repressed, and in fact, an authoritarian state. Hey, welcome to a special Pod Extra edition of Labor History Today. That was Bill Fletcher Jr., trade unionist, writer, and past president of Trans-Africa Forum. He moderated a powerful plenary session at the 12th Annual Conference of the Labor Research and Action Network on Wednesday, June 7th, co-hosted at Georgetown University by the Kelmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. LRAN is a project of the Jobs with Justice Education Fund. The counter-revolution that we've been witnessing has several particular years that are critical to understand in order to understand where we are right now. 1946, 1954 to 56, 1960, 1980, and 1994. And from the course of 1946 on, you start to see the evolution in different tendencies on the right. And we begin to understand that the right wing is not monolithic. 1954-56 1954-56 was the uh, commencement of the white resistance. It was, the, it was in opposition to Brown versus a Board of Education and efforts at desegregation, the rise of citizen councils. There were major splits in organized labor. There were many uh, state federations and central labor councils in the South that wanted to defend Jim Crow, and it created another little bit poorly documented and understood civil war within organized labor. But it was primarily a defensive battle, no matter how uh, violent it was. 1968, we see a change. And the change actually begins in the aftermath of the 64 uh, uh, Goldwater campaign, when Goldwater was crushed. But an element within Goldwater's campaign realized that there was something that Goldwater and later uh, George Wallace were touching on that needed to be developed. So articulated by people like Paul Weirich uh, and others, they began the development of what came to be known as the New Right. And the New Right ends up carrying out a tactical alliance with this uh, opportunistic politician out of California named Richard Nixon, 
um, and infuses with Nixon the idea of something needs to be done to turn the Democratic Party into the Black Party and the Republican Party into the non-Black Party. And that, in essence, was the Southern strategy, uh, which I think is better known as the white people's strategy. 1980 is pivotal with the, uh, with the Reagan election because Reagan goes to the right of Nixon, uh, begins his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which everybody understood at the time was a clear signal to white supremacists in the South and so-called states' rights people uh, that, they, that Reagan represented something different. And he, like Nixon, was prepared to ally with forces that were further to the right. Um, and saw them as useful. Now, it's around this time that segments of the right in, within the Republican Party decide to begin a purge of the Republican Party and eliminate its liberal wing. And this becomes very, very important over time, and it helps to explain some of the problems that Republicans have in terms of bucking people like, uh, like Trump. And then in 1994, we, of course, had Gingrich and the contract on America and the, um, the efforts that were taken right then to change the discussion that there was no more playing patty cake with the Democrats, that this was, in fact, a war. A country founded on settler colonialism, indentured servitude, racial slavery, the oppression of women, underwent tumultuous changes in the 20th century, advancing democracy even within the context of capitalism. But we needed to expect that there was going to be a counterattack. Um, the seizing on the impact of neoliberal globalization, elements of the right which had helped to introduce neoliberalism, helped to mobilize and expand their base in order to overthrow the 20th century. Bill Fletcher Jr. introducing a plenary session at the 12th Annual Conference of the Labor Research and Action Network at Georgetown University. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 100 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru is Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week.